a podcast called Strangest Fruit. So we're back on the Strangest Fruit Podcast. Please be sure to hit the like button, comment, subscribe. Today was sort of a special day for me. I had um, a guest on that means the world to me, is who I give credit to, a big reason why I'm free today. She created the law, her and her colleagues, Senate Bill 260. And um, yeah, we thank you for coming. My pleasure. And you know, we were talking earlier and I wanted to ask you if you, do you understand the impact that, that you have on people's lives in there and, you know, what they look to you as is like a beacon of hope. And, you know, I'll share again what we were talking about. Um, I came to know of you in, it was 2014. Yes, 2014. You, Scott Budnick, Javier Starring, Frankie Carrillo, um, the Mount Rushmore of prison reform, <laughs> came into um, the Corcoran Shoe, and we were literally in stand-up cages. I remember the size, this. Yeah, the size it of phone booths. horrible. This was the room that had, like, maybe eight of them in it. And exactly. Like in a circle. You. This just bizarre. And Scott goes, this looks like it could be a college classroom to me. That was kind of mind-blowing, yeah. too. Yeah, yeah. Because one of my favorite quotes, I, I, I think it was by Einstein, he said, it, it's not the four walls that matter, it's what's within the four walls that defines the room. Yeah. So I always kind of carried that, like I could create yeah. my cell to be, you know, whatever I wanted it to be. Yeah, but you I guys, love that. Yeah. Yeah, and even like seeing that room, you know, like the first thing I thought walking in there is just how, like, like who comes up with an idea of a cage you know, that is whatever that was, three feet by three feet, if that, and puts 10 of them in a room so that you can have a classroom, yeah. you know, it, with people in cages. I mean, yeah, but. And, and, and the crazy part about it was, you know, the night before we got the ducats saying, it was six of us that I knew that got the ducats. I know more people had that said, you know, you're gonna go to the committee room for an event tomorrow, it said special event. And anybody that knows about the shoe or the hole, there's nothing special in there. You go to the showers and back, you go to another cage and back. That's the extent of your life. So when we did go in there, you know, we realized that the common denominator was all of us um, had been tried and convicted as juveniles at, you know, 18 and below. Most of us were 16 and 17 at the time when we were convicted. We had already been down cl close to 20 years at that point. So we said. So you were talking to each other as like waiting for us to show up. It was and, actually and the night like, before. It was the night I before. I think we made the connection. Yeah. We were like, "What is it?" I think everyone yeah. slept on it. Yeah. And then the night before. Wow. And you guys walked in, and it was interesting. The energy was amazing. Um, you guys came in. I don't know. It was. It was in a place where you live where nothing happens. Life is so mm -hmm. dull, uneventful. To have these people come in was an experience already, and you guys brought news and you shared with us about senate bill 260 yeah i remember this yeah well, how, how did that remember. feel for you sharing it? i'll tell you how it felt for me which you know eventually i would love to get into the word hope 
what it means to each of us. And but how, how did it feel coming in? Did you mm -hmm. realize that you were in my life, my world forever changed in that moment? I mean, I think um, out of all of the like really interesting things that I get to do in this work or things that are powerful and um, moving, um, that setting, that kind of setting is the most um, beautiful and humbling for me um, to connect with people who I know are in the darkest of places, you know, both literally and figuratively, because some people in that, in those little cages and in that room would have been people who had, um, were really, really deep into like continuing gang life yeah. and everything yeah. and having zero hope and zero, seeing zero light at the end of the tunnel and, um, you loosen the nut and feeling self-hatred like is a real common thing, you know, in terms of talking with people. And yeah, being able to walk in and say, here is, here's a little spark. This is, this is, this is real. This is, you know, you, you have it, you have something that can work and now it's, it's on you. Did you guys and have an understanding that like we were the hard cases? Yeah. Cause I remember. That's what I'm saying. It's my favorite. That's my favorite place to be. Yeah. You know, like uh, with, in that setting with, yeah, the hard, the hard cases, yeah. the people who are yeah. like. Don't even talk to me about hope. Don't even talk to me about some bullshit. Because it's been gone for yeah. so yeah. Yeah. I mean, at that point in my life, my grandmother had died the year before. So like, when you were painting the picture that moment, I, I I almost I got emotional a little because I can like vividly remember like being in deep mourning, like contemplating my life at that time. Yeah. Like, I was looking at my cell, which is just as dark as that room was, and I remember it, like on a daily basis because this is my tomb. Like, I'm going to die here. I spent nine years yeah. in that cell, in the same cell, single cell. And I remember thinking, this is my tomb. Like, it was such a dark time, but I was reaching out to different organizations, trying to write, trying to understand things. I had got my GED back there, you wow. know, which was, you know, maybe at like 35, 34. It, it was so amazing to hang it on the wall. And it was in honor of my grandmother. Hmm. And then, but I was doing good things silently because it's people don't understand like hey i'm trying to change and think right and do something positive yeah. they're going to be like what's wrong with this dude you yeah, know right but i i did that alone in myself when you guys came that day it was yeah it was like confirmation almost that i was on the right path and man it gave me so much hope wow it gave me so much hope it healed me it uh, it it invigorated my family who had has done the entire sense along with me minus being in the cell so yeah, it, it, it was everything, it was everything. When I went to my parole board, my lawyer um, at the time, it was my appeal lawyer, which we became friends, and, and my lawyer wrote an amazing letter to the board saying, I remember the day, and, and she wrote a portion of the letter, he said these people came in and there's hope, and like the way, he said nothing, something shifted in him that day. Mm -hmm. And that was, from there it went to the dog program, it went to go, getting college, and. It's amazing what hope can do. And, and I'm not, my story is not, um, doesn't stand alone. I, I, there's a lot of great men who shifted right along with me when the, we always wanted to do that, but there was just nothing there. Like, I, th I do think um, for all of us, hope and kind of all the 
iterations of what hope means, it's like oxygen. Like we need it. We need it to, to survive. You know, don't want to get like too biblical, but there is, you know, Isaiah says, without hope, the people perish. And I think we do that as a, as a community and yeah. we do it as individuals and we just begin to be self-destructive yeah. and, um, you know, just the opposite of, of what. At the time there was a doc hearing. I was 19 years old. Um, I, newly Salinas Valley state prison had just opened. I was there. I went to a doc hearing and I talked to, um, a deputy commissioner and I believe it was two deputy commissioners. And they said, you're coming up for board in year 15. It was only year like two or three at that point in prison. And they said, we want your GED. We want you to get a trade. We want you to stay out of trouble. Um, try to get positive letters and chronos. I said, okay. At that point I had zero write-ups. Um, I said, sir, if, if I check all those boxes and I do all those things, will I go home one day? Both of them laughed and said, your parole officer hadn't even been born yet. And oh in that moment, God. I was done. Oh my God. I made my decision. Wow. After that, I continued to get write-ups. I was in ABE one. How old were you at that time? When you I, had I that was duck? 19. Yeah. And, I, and, and I remember oh looking God. through the title 15, just trying to find mm -hmm. something. And then literally like two days after that, I witnessed like a really brutal stabbing on the yard. Everything in me wanted to just look away. But I forced myself to watch that. And I remember thinking in my head, you better watch this. This is your life now. And you better get used to it. To my core, I, I was shaken. Yeah. But it, that's the moment hope disappeared from my yeah. life. I, can, I, I was able to identify that moment years later in Ironwood. But so I understand to live with it and to receive it again. It's so huge. That's why it's biblical. Like, and you, like, I mean, so that was like 1995, something like um, that. I'm this trying was to remember your, um, 1996, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Everyone around you also was probably saying, oh, you have a life sentence? It means you're never getting out. All day. You, know, you like have all day. Like, you're and done. You probably never met anybody who, you know, was paroled eventually because mm -hmm. the rate at that point was, you know, whatever it was like two percent three percent yeah 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 you know we were before the camera started rolling we were talking a little bit about hope and um i my work in california started out working on the issue of life without parole and that's where you started everything yeah when i started working at human rights watch in california was um for a number of reasons, deciding to start kind of on the extreme end of what can happen when a and child what is... What year are we talking about? Um, well, we, Human Rights Watch, published the first uh, research looking at life without parole in the United States in 2005. Oh, and wow. Then, yeah. Yeah, I started in California yeah. in 2006. Wow. And it took um, almost seven years to pass um, a law that basically gave people who had life without parole for a crime they committed under the age of 18, the chance to go back to court and ask to be resentenced. So- That's not the Franklin. No, okay. no. Okay. Um, uh, it was called SB9. Oh, okay. Um, okay, And it just affected people who were under 18 at the time of the crime, got life without parole. Mm. And it was a chance to be resentenced. It was no guarantee. Um, you know, it's like several steps away from ever getting before a parole board. Sure. Um, but it was the first law of its type in the country. And I think there's no question that it laid the foundation for something like SB 260, which 
affected you, and that's why we were visiting you in in 2014. Yeah. Um, so it it, but it took a long time to pass it, and um, you know I um, I met Nancy Skinner too. Oh, you did! Oh, oh that's great. Gosh. That is great. Oh my gosh! That is great. Yeah, Scott I took that. us to uh, Sacramento. It was, yeah, that is it was crazy. Yeah, what was that like? It was just amazing. She's so great. She just went in there with a towel around her neck. She, I don't know if it was her lunchtime, just spoke <laughs> She's working with us. out or something. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. It was, yeah, it was, yeah. it was unbelievable. It yeah. was. He took us there. We walked into the to the floor, the center floor, up in the balcony. Oh yeah. And they said uh, we like to welcome Scott Budnick and his colleagues. Everybody in the center floor turned around, faced us, and started oh, clapping. Wow. wow! I had tears coming yeah. down my eyes. I'm not even pretending like I didn't. It yeah. was, and I'm That's literally amazing. a month and a half out of a life sentence. Wow! On our yeah. way back from the Sacramento River from three days, all ex-lifers. Oh, you did the uh, the rafting trip. Yeah, that is great. I came back with bruises really and great. aches and pains like I've never known in my life. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. That is really great. You know, speaking of that balcony, and you can kind of imagine this. I had. It took us, with SB9, it took us several years to even get to a floor vote because it would get killed in committee, meaning it didn't even progress far enough uh, to, to be voted on um, in, like, by the full Senate okay. or the full uh, Assembly. And um, when it did, there were then were several years where it would get all the way to a vote in the Senate and it would fail. And I remember sitting up in that balcony, and you know, it's like so ornate. It's yeah. like very kind of awe-inspiring. And it's, I think it's probably meant to be. It's exactly, like this yeah. ornate, yeah, it's beautiful. very, very old building um, with chandeliers yeah, and yeah, yeah. You know, heavy you know, carpets and yeah. you know, drapes yeah. and a lot of pomp and circumstance. And sitting there, you look down on them and just feeling like if this doesn't pass, how is it going to affect people inside? And I would say all those seven years, um, I really was worried about losing because we wouldn't win and people would still have life without parole, but losing and having people be devastated and you know, kind of being worse than they were you know, when we started and they began to have hope. Um, and I remember like, the first time walking out um, of that, uh, you know, very pomp, you know, like very, very awe-inspiring kind of situation, you know, myself devastated because it had failed by two votes. And I'm thinking about the people inside. I'm thinking about their family members. And I walk outside and my cell phone starts like pinging. And it's like family members writing me and saying, we got so close. Like they were like, I was devastated and worried that they were going to be like, oh, my family's never, my son's never going to get out of prison. And instead, they were invigorated by the fact that we had gotten so close. Okay. And it was, um, I think that was true for people inside also. But there's another layer that I really learned from people inside about hope. Um, like one guy wrote me and said, you know, Elizabeth, I can because I would write people. I would write them as a group, you know, every every few months to kind of update them what's going on. Do you still write letters today? You know, I, the, even then it was like a form letter to the yeah. 350 people who were serving yeah. juvenile life without parole. Yes, yes. You know, I've sent 
like when we did SB 260, yeah. we sent something out to the that. you know 4,000 people that affected. By the time we got to 261, that was like another 16,000 Everybody people. in prison loves to get an Elizabeth Calvin letter. <laughs> I'm telling you, that white envelope <laughs> with the sticker, I promise, because it's always something <laughs> like, that there's hilarious. something. Even yeah. if it's not a victory, but I it's many okay. times, <laughs> you're like, hell yeah, you know? Because yeah. it, it is. It's going to be like the latest news, like because yeah. you know it's someone on your team. Yeah. It's someone who really cares. What I I'm wish sorry. I could write people more often. I'm having all these like, flashbacks like, when yeah, you say things. That so. is, that's hilarious. Yes. So this guy, and I probably wasn't doing this as much by the time I did the Youth Offender Parole, but when, when I was doing the LWAP, the initial LWAP work, you know, everyone around him was like, you know, go for it. You know, Don Quixote. Like, you know, it's like, like this wow. is, you're never gonna. Like, I mean, they're not wrong. Yeah. yeah I mean, it, it, it so was a crazy it was, endeavor. It felt like right a there. really, you know, like a, and I, for a long time, I worried, you know, that at some point Human Rights Watch would say to me, you know, my director would say, you know, you've, you've given it a good try. Let's move on to something else. But uh. they didn't. They kept saying, you know, you're getting closer, keep trying. Um, but this guy wrote me and he's like, I just wanna tell you, I can see at the end of every letter you send us, so this would be the people serving JLWAP, you say, D you know, don't get your hopes up. <laughs> like, this is really a hard road, but we're going to give it our best. But, like, just recognize, you know, we may not win or something like that. Sure. And he, he kind of saw through that and saw that I was oh, worried wow. about people, you know, like losing you know, losing their minds, losing their hearts, you know, if, sure. um, if we lost. And he said, he said, what you don't understand is that hope is something in and of itself, and we are all changed by it. And even if you don't succeed and you don't win, we, we're different now than we were a few years ago because we've had hope and it helps us recognize something in ourselves that is different mm. um and so that's that'll be true no matter what it was really yeah and i well. you know it's it was a, a big lesson for me about it's okay to to hope you don't have to guard your heart just to go all you in yeah, yeah just to it's, put you it you don't yeah. have to like guarding your heart you know isn't gonna necessarily help you you know, and I, I mean, I can say that in my personal life, you know, it's like, it yeah. was like, it's a lesson that yeah. was a really important one. And it was great just to be part of the conversation. Like, even if yeah. you take it like, yeah. okay, they're talking about people under 18 and like, right. Cause there had never been yeah. anything. It was, yeah. there was nothing. And part of it too, when the groups became implemented, I don't know if that was, um, a part of the Ashker case that happened, which groups, um, Narcotics Anonymous, CGA, yeah. Emotional yeah. Intelligence, yeah. Um, Alternative to Violence, Healing Dialogue and Action, I, which was, I love those. In Ironwood, I did yeah. it two times, and the other times, the I wouldn't get abducted, and, and yeah, and I'd yeah, sneak into great. the chapel, and I'd spend the three days there. But um, yeah, all those, those were so critical right there. Was that part of um, the laws? Like, it seemed like they just kind of appeared at some point, which was a huge part of it. Yeah, I mean, I think there was kind of a <coughs> confluence of things happening. Yeah, it was um, so you know, fast. one was the prisons were unconstitutionally overcrowded to the point of not, you know, basically California's prisons were put into receivership with a federal court, and the federal court 
became, in essence, in charge of the prisons. And um, I think Governor Brown really recognized that things needed to shift in terms of real opportunities for rehabilitation. So this is pretty late into your time in prison because we're talking, you know, 2012, 2013, 2014. Earlier than that, I think there was um, just kind of the beginnings of a recognition of we need to give people some tools. Because when those two people met you and did the doc hearing, it's like you need to do X, Y, and Z, but you probably didn't have access to yeah. a GED program. You probably didn't have access to you know, vocational training that they told you you had to have. I mean, so... And when you're coming into that type of environment at 18 years old, I had, my goal was to be alive at the end of the day, was to survive. Like I'm there, so much stimulus and things coming from so many directions. Like I'm looking at men that have been in prison longer than I've been alive. And I remember the first time I went to Chow, I looked over and I thought, damn, this guy's fist is like the size of my head, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Yeah, And and when I was 18, I had a big head, you know? But um, yeah, it's, you gotta have, there has to be something there. That was my biggest thing. And especially now that people are coming home. So, you know, how they're treated in there, how their groups are done. Yeah. Is, do you get a lot of flack from people saying, we talked to Zach Scow, who, um, I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's, he implemented the positive change program in about five different prisons. Um, he, he gets a lot of flack, like, why are you helping these people? Um, they're, they're criminals. They helping don't deserve it. in prison? Um, yeah. yeah, like, yeah. Um, is that, I'm sure it is. You know, um, I mean, I, I don't get that much flack for that. And I think mainly, I think it's because I, at this point, you know, know so many people and I can talk about how some of the most, absolutely most remarkable people I've ever met in my life are people who are in prison. And I think most people on the outside, including people who have no intersection in their life with prison or the criminal justice system, have um, a desire to believe in the human capacity to change and to grow. And that is that makes what is happening for many people in prison a really compelling story and... I think, you know, from a negative perspective, you know, like with Prop 57, one of the messages was, these people are getting out. Like, yeah. who do you want them to be when they get out? Yeah. But from, you know, I, I prefer like a more, you know, flipping that on its head a little bit and being like, these are people with incredible potential. Um, are we going to give them the tools so they can become, you know, who they want to be, mm. you know, and not be limited to, the only thing I know I want to be is a gang member because it's going to make me alive at the end of the day, or it's the only place where I get, um, you know, positive reinforcement. Absolutely, you know, which yeah. is one hundred. Yeah, yeah. And if you're telling me I'm never going to go home, what's the point of going to school when my education yeah. is right here in the yard? Yeah, I can yeah. learn everything. Like what I need. I need is here. Exactly. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So, uh, what drove you to? How did you get into this? Like, how do you? How do you, when you said you, you were sitting on the balcony and, and you're feeling the, the anxiousness of, you know, how are these families going to take it? Like, where does that come from? Um, 
you know, I get asked that a lot, and I feel like I don't have, uh, you know, like a nice, neat answer. What I can say is both of my parents really instilled in us the importance of um, kind of like both the responsibility um, and the um, the joy of being a part of repairing the world and being a part of, um, you know, making things better. And I just, I think, I think I had some early experiences that made me kind of temperamentally want to be standing at the side of people um, who uh, were oftentimes despised by others. And those experiences were reinforced because I kept, you know, having these interactions with people who others called monsters. Um, and I realized um, over and over again, I was meeting people who were really remarkable and people who had incredible capacity for compassion um, and incredible capacity for, um, you know, being a good person, basically. And that just kind of built on itself. So by the time you see me sitting in, you know, that balcony and having these, like, heavy emotions about it, um, by that time, and, you know, like, and where I am now, it's just like I, um, you know, like, these are my people. And not just people inside, but also, you know, so much. You mentioned healing, dialogue, and action. That actually was born as a part of the JLWAP um, campaign that we were doing because we started realizing that, that there was something that wasn't ethical about us moving on this bill to change life without parole without involving, in a meaningful way, the leadership of survivors um, who people whose loved ones had been murdered. And so we began interacting. And so all of these people are people that I've just learned so much, and I get so much out of it in terms of, you know, basically joy. <laughs> um, so it's a lot, you know, mm-hmm. if, the que- if the question comes like, why do you sacrifice yourself, da, 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 it's like, I think the answer is, no, 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 no. You know, you're not understanding how much, like, joy I get and meaning that I get from being, you know, in this struggle with you. It's such, that's always had been such a hard thing for me to receive. Uh-huh. Like even having like, why would these people want to come into the pits of hell literally and just yeah, in solidarity with this and feel the compassion and like it. it but think about like our interaction, you know, the, even though I wouldn't have known that was what was happening for you the next day, um, it's just a very special thing yeah. for two people who don't know each other to be talking about these big, big ideas and this, this, this concept of hope and to have that connection. Yeah. It's just, it's a very beautiful and Yeah, thing, like when we, know, were, yeah, like, when we were yeah. talking before, I mean, you're somebody who deals with like hundreds of people sharing messages. I'm the one person that, you know, received it. So like I recall everything that day. Like I told, remember yeah. what shoes Scott was wearing? Actually, that day was the first. <laughs> Those are day. always memorable. But yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he he brought a laptop 
just to reinforce what you guys were saying, basically about Senate Bill 260, um, juveniles have the opportunity to come home. You explained to us about the science, which yeah. led me to look up all kinds of things. And I went and uh, he, he opened up the laptop. I had never seen a laptop before in my life. Wow. He opened a laptop and he's, right. and yeah, there were guys standing on the steps of the Supreme Court. And he goes, every one of those guys are former gang members, former lifers. So to, to see it, oh my yeah. gosh. Yeah, what did you think when he said that? I mean, I'm getting over the, just seeing the laptop yeah. for starters. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> right. but it's, I don't know, there wasn't, um, like I accepted it immediately. There was, I don't remember having a moment where this can't be real. It's because of the people that came in. You guys, yeah. you, yeah. you could immediately feel the energy. And at the moment, I was so open to just clinging to looking for anything to grab onto other than what I had been doing my whole life. And that cell. Yeah, yeah, that had gotten me what I'd always gotten. I was so depressed and sad and alone, uh, full of like self-hatred. I didn't have any life skills or tools and I just was dying to learn them. Yeah. Something that I, that I share, it with, it's funny, but in a way it's partially sad. I literally used to watch Grey's Anatomy to see how they responded to life problems. Where I said, I'm in a normal, <laughs> you know, that's a true, like, like yeah. you know, relationship arguments, yeah. not like to a T, but, yeah. you know, because I literally, I didn't, I didn't have any blueprint or map, yeah. you know, and I was just, there was nobody around that I could share the fact that I'm trying to evolve in my mind, yeah. you know? That seems like a smart thing to do. Yeah. You know, it's like the stories yeah. that we tell, yeah. us, you know, are all things that we learn from. But when you're when raised. you're just so hungry and starving yeah. for something, there's you there's nothing you wouldn't do. And when you're in a cell in solitary, and you don't have that ability to like interact with someone, and like you know the whole thing of the you know the the shoe handshake, the shoe handshake. and like having that physical contact and just knowing that. Um, you know, someone who's hasn't been touched by another human being except maybe when handcuffs are being put on. Yeah, I mean, can you yeah. re remember a specific moment in your life in 2014 where you made contact with a human being? Like, I remember that moment when right. Scott came up and yeah. put his finger through there and we yeah. did the shoe handshake. That was my first human contact in yeah. five years. Yeah. And it seems so small, but it was huge. A, yeah. a, like just so many things happened. So many people came in and I think Frankie had been newly released at that point. I think that's right. Yeah. Cause he had just come from Folsom Yeah, and he says, I got out and I went up and I was up in the tower in Folsom and just, I was like, what do you mean in the tower? That's like, right. because we were at that time, we were unable to get people into prison who were on parole mm. and because he had been exonerated, he wasn't on parole. And so we could bring him in, but we couldn't, it wasn't until I just remember SB 261 passed. And was that we, an easier one since 60 went through, or you know, that was it, it was about the same actually. It was a, it was about the same. It, it might have been a little bit harder because we were, you know, bumping up the age. Um, whereas SB 260 came on the heels of SB 9, the LWAP bill. So we had for seven years been talking to legislators. You know, kids are different from adults. You know, kids are neurologically, developmentally different. And so when we got to SB 260, um, I, you know, it's funny. I, so we took seven years to pass the JL Watt bill. And then I, um, 
I pulled together a group of our allies, um, including two people who had been juveniles, got life sentences, and got out. So they didn't get out under SB 260. They, they were the, one of the, you know, whatever it oh, was, 2%. Okay. Yeah, through the parole board. And they had been working with us. One of them, had, like three days after he got out, called me and said, how can I help? Wow. And so he, we had incorporated him into the, into the work. Um, and we talked about, like, what the next steps would be, would be. And that's where SB 260 was born. And it actually was mostly um, this guy's idea. He's the one who brought it to the group. Um, and we started. So... We came up with the idea of SB 260, and I talked with a whole bunch of you know professional lobbyists about it, and every single one of them, I think I talked to six or seven different people, every single one of them said, don't do it this year. Wait a couple of years and come back. For This is for 60? SB 260, yeah. Why? Why, do you, why did they say they're that? They're like, they're sick of you. <sighs> you, you know, basically wore them down to vote for SB9. Well, okay, that was my question. We were saying, <laughs> yeah. are you coming around with teams like knocking on yeah. senators' doors? Oh, like, for sure, yeah. And like, no. I mean, and, and, you know, doing meeting after meeting and then, you know, and, you know, as the campaigns went on, at, after a while, a lot of what I was doing was finding other people to do the meetings because, you know, and our, the coalition for this just got bigger and bigger, but because you can't have the same groups going back over and over, you want you know, the Catholics to be there. You want, okay, that makes you, sense. Know, you know, whatever Coalition, else, you know, yeah. the, you want you want other people to be doing the meetings so that it doesn't look like it's you know, just these, you know, two or three groups that are So when you say they're it. sick, you yeah. are they like the centers? They go, oh God, here comes Elizabeth Calvin with well, her crew. And, like, and there was kind of this perception that, um, that by the time it passed, you know, we had really kind of like worn people down and... They had. There was also this perception that they had taken a big political risk to vote for SB nine, and it was in an election year, and so people meant it meant they were voting on it in August, and some of them were up for re-election um, in November. Okay. And so there was this worry that their vote on this bill would be used against them. As it turned out, not a single person faced any criticism in their campaigns because hmm. we were at their ready. You know, those who could work on campaign things. Um, we're going to try to, you know, back them up. Um, so when we talked to the lobbyists, they're like, just like, let things chill out for a while because here you've asked them to do this heavy lift and they did it. And, um, and I ultimately decided, um, what's the worst thing that can happen? Like we, we get somebody to introduce the bill, Senator Hancock introduced the bill. Yeah. And if people are like, go away, you know, you've asked too much of us and we can't do this now, then we'll pull it. And we'll come back in a couple years. And instead, and I actually remember this meeting very, very clearly, and Javier was with me. Okay. And we sat down with somebody, the, like the first meeting that we did, and we described SB 260. And the person, must have been a senator, I think I, think I remember who it was, um, basically said, hmm, well, you know, we have a law that has to do with kids who had life without parole. And I'm thinking, this law literally has been enacted for like three weeks. <laughs> like, but the way that he talked about it was like, we already have a law like this. Like it had become, in his mind, the norm that okay. we, uh, on these weird. most extreme wow. sentences, we, have, we give people a second chance. It makes sense that we would give a second chance to people who don't have as extreme of a sentence. And so that was, that helped us, you know, and that's why SB 260 was passed the first year that we 
you know, that we, uh, that we tried. And I remember getting, I don't know how I came upon them, but I remember getting like the, the drafts before they're done. Yeah. So it got chopped up. I, at some point I remember yeah. you were going to go before a judge and could sort of tell your case and the judge was going to yeah. rule on it. And yeah, SB 260 had quite a few different drafts. And one of the things this is kind of, uh, getting into the weeds of it, but there was, um, a California Supreme court case, Caballero yeah. that happened that year. And that, um, opened the door just a little bit to the idea that California needed to change its, its sentences for some of the most extreme sentences. But SB 260, of course, doesn't only deal with extreme sentences. I mean, depending what you think of as extreme, yeah. um, it, it, you know, deals with the whole <coughs> range, you know, down to 15 years. And so, but it, so that created, um, some kind of reevaluation of how we should go forward with it. Okay. Um, and there was also uh, a lot of negotiation with um, with the district attorneys, actually, because they were interestingly running a bill in parallel that would have kind of addressed the issues in Caballero, but we were running a bill that was much bigger than that, and um, so we were kind of you know back and forth. It was the I think it was the LA district attorney that was the lead on that. Okay. So anyway, so there were a lot of iterations of it right up uh, into July, really like right up to like wow. the edge of, of July, really big um, changes as it went, went along. Yeah. 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 That. So if you saw, yeah, what you saw that came out in January would have been, you know, changed several times, amended several times okay. through all those negotiations. And, yeah. it, and it's really, like what I shared to people, it's not like get out of jail free card by any stretch. Like no. I had to go through an, an extensive parole board yeah. process. Yeah. I went to the first time I had, um, I went to the parole board maybe six months before you guys came. I had zero. All I had was an inkling at the time that I need to do, I need to be better. And w right. with no skills, yeah. I went to the parole board. I got a seven year denial. Cause I, and yeah. I would look back on my transcript years later and be like, oh my gosh. Yeah. It's, it's, right. You like, you know why. Yeah. And you can look <laughs> yeah. at it compared. Yeah. And I did the full seven year oh, denial wow. and I went before the board in, um, 2022 in February 2nd. Amazing hearing. I, I, as soon as the hearing. So you're set, said, you got out on your second. Yeah. He uh, said, go back. We're going to deliberate. I went back in. I set my, my briefcase down, took a drink of water, and then opened the door and said, they're done. I went back and sat down. Oh my God. And the wow. commissioner said, this has been What did you think when you were going back in with such a I knew short turnaround? I was so calm. But yeah. at that point in my life, I got into a place where I was who I was. Yeah. It was not going to impact my yeah. decisions or anything. Yeah. I, 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 I decided to become a good man and hope the pro board just recognizes. Yeah. And wow. he said, this is probably one of the easiest decisions I've ever made. Oh my wow. gosh. I didn't hear nothing. Wow. After that. I just wow. heard the word suitable. And wow. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But to go home and to call my mom, to go back and oh say, my mom, God. she picked up the phone. She was at work. All I said was mom. And she knows she could tell by her voice. I said, God is good. And she's the crying. Oh like, my Oh my gosh, my sister, my nephews. Yeah. Um, it's, it's amazing. And I have so many friends from that Ironwood sea yard, a minimum of 20. We're on text threads together. We talk often who are just <clears throat> doing so amazing at life contributing so much yeah. great things to society, going back into prisons. It's, yeah. it's, I mean, it's, 
we we owe that you know at least you guys put in that work it's, like we we're, we're trying to honor that you know we just published a report human rights watch just published a report that's only looking at people who had life without parole and are now out and it basically we surveyed and interviewed 110 people in california who had life without and are now out and we just looked at basically what are you doing what are you doing now what are you what are you doing with your second chance it's phenomenal it's like 94 percent of them are volunteering with charities you know a huge percentage of of them are working with nonprofits, including dog rescues a lot of people in dog rescue a lot of people um working with people who are houseless i mean it's just very very powerful it's a very powerful witness as to what happens when you give people a second chance um, and let them come home. And it yeah. means really the rest of us are better off is what it means. Yes. And then it, it's just to come around and to be sitting across from you, like from the last time we were, we were separated. Yeah, it's yeah. amazing. That's a good thing and to think you about. Know, like, my, yeah. My, my good brother right here, Didante, who um, we're hoping will arrive shortly, he was caught in traffic. So we met in Corcoran in the dog program. Oh. Um, he's coming from a different wow. background, you know, a, a former blood from Compton who uh -huh. um, decided to put the dog program first and, and give her all. Wow. Me, you know, I come from a different background. We had crossed each other so many times on that yard. And it, it was always just one of those. Yeah. Hey, how you doing? Just respectful, right. cool. But I had never known him till the day that they assigned Brian James, Dante Farmer. You guys are assigned to this dog. And we, we were assigned wow. to train a dog together. He has to work in the morning, I have to work in the night. So we figure out schedules and we talk. And in the process, I really get to know this guy. And I realize, yeah. like, wow, we're so much the same on so many levels. Wow. And I grew to love this guy. And I grew to call him my wow. brother. As soon as I paroled, he got me a job. And I says, wow. hey, man, I know a great guy that ran Inside Out Riders when I was there. And we, we called Ray. And, and this just became, wow. it was born. Wow. And that's, that's our great... goal, to try to just put positive messages and like that's, show what's possible because like we say this is the, our friendship should have never happened yeah, this is on a level right. four prison everything yeah oh, wow but it shows wow. when your desire and, and hope was there this is yeah. post to sb 260 yeah and, and a dog yeah <laughs> dogs like yeah, make that, everything better <laughs> that's the best therapy in the world <laughs> right, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely yeah, i always yeah. say that <laughs> And we do that today. Yeah. He's like probably one of the best dog trainers that uh, I know. Does he work for a company? He started or his own business. Oh, yeah, he started great. Canine Hub, his own business. That is great. Yeah, that yeah he does great. great work. And yeah. um, he goes back into the juvenile facilities. He goes into Camp Kilpatrick for the Positive oh, Change Program and teaches the kids. Fabulous. Wow. Yeah. That is great. It's unbelievable. The unbelievable. Stuff, the yeah. stuff that happens. Yeah. That's yeah. how I felt with healing dialogue in action. I saw stuff inside there, the most radical forgiveness I had ever imagined in my life. Yeah. I had, I was in the circle one day with Javier and, um, you know, survivors come in. And I remember saying, like, I've separated myself from gangs. I've gotten clean and sober. I've eliminated all this chaos from my life. I'm like, I'm finally at peace. But the fact remains is... I still took part in taking a human being's life and that still weighs so heavy on my mm -hmm. conscience. How do you even go about forgiving yourself? That was the final like thing I needed to get past in my life, which is maybe why I got denied. I don't know. 
But mm-hmm. this, the woman survivor, which was, there was three of them that day, they stood up and they put their arms around me and they said, we forgive you. Their sons had been murdered from gang violence. Wow. And in front of a group of all the men right there, completely broke down. Wow. Wow. It was amazing. I mean, that human connection, too. That, you know, it's like that's not something that you could have ever gotten to sitting in a solitary no. confinement cell. It's like it, there needs to be that, that kind of interaction, that relationship you know, it's really important. And all I needed was for you guys to just do that walk through and just boom, just to start yeah. the engine. And it hasn't yeah. stopped yet. It yeah. hasn't stopped yet. You know? So my question too is, oh, I got so many friends that are LWAPs right there. Yeah. Still incarcerated, which was one of my hardest moments. Um, turning around and leaving as you do that last look. They open the door at 6 in the morning. Imagine. They say, James, r yeah. r my bags yeah. are ready. And you do that last look. And you see these guys, like, yeah. you know, you see David Hampton, and you see all these guys who are amazing men, who are, are just Zero like chance. me. Zero chance, yeah. Zero chance. These yeah. guys are amazing people with families who love them, coming into supportive systems, yeah. but they just haven't gotten their shot yet. They're yeah. still s- very hopeful. They are who they are. Regardless of what happened, they're going to continue to contribute. They do great things yeah. for society amazing. inside and out. Yeah. But wow. <laughs> That's such a hard battle with the L. Such a hard battle. It's it's a it's it's a hard battle. And just this last week, um, SB ninety four, which would have helped a very small sliver of people serving life without parole, was not able to be passed. It's uh, technically a two year bill. Um, you know, unclear what'll happen with that. So, yeah, it's a it's a rough it's a rough battle. I feel like. Um, you know, from a from a couple of different perspectives, we still have a lot of work to do in terms of being able to convey what we're really talking about and who we're really talking about and what it means for somebody to get a second chance, even with a sentence like life without parole. So we still have a lot of work to do. I don't think it's impossible. Mm. I think we might have to come about it in a different way, but I don't think it's impossible. And how great is it that we have, well, one, he was not a former lifer, um, my good friend, Jared Nava, who works in Sacramento, who had 275 I, I years Jared. of yeah, life. Yeah, it, Life without parole, just yeah, by a different name. Exactly. Yeah. Virtual yeah. life. Was yeah. never going to go home. And just doing so many great things up there. Yeah. Such a great representative of change for us, too. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. He's doing great up yeah. there. There's several people who are working there right now who are former... Yeah, you know, like formerly incarcerated. Yeah, I mean, you you probably were wondering about the Harden case. Um, Definitely. Do, should we talk about that a little bit? Yes. Um, that is, you know, like here we are in September 2023. So that's going to be argued sometime early next year, 2024. Um, then it'll be a few months probably before a decision. Um, it's based on an equal protection argument. Um, interestingly, a lot of the equal protection arguments that have come out around SB 260 or SB 9 um, have argued, what's the difference between an 18-year-old and a 17-year-old? You know, there's not, there's, they should be treated the same kind of thing. You know, so more based on age. Um, this comes at it a, a, a somewhat different way, which I think is 
pretty fascinating. Um, and that is this idea that the way that you get LWAP in a murder case is with a special circumstance. And, um, you know, I, I teach a, a class, a, a law class every year. And this year we asked the students to um, describe a murder that could not be charged with a special circumstance. And it's almost impossible to do. There's, there's, no know, way there's so it. many yeah. of them. They cover so much, you know. Um, and so this is one of the, the lower court in Hardin basically said there's you know, the difference between murder one and murder one with special circumstances. That, you know, that is, you know, first of all, almost all murders could be described, could be uh, charged with special circumstances. Absolutely. But the other thing that this uh, judge said was, um, when you look at SB 260, the purpose of it um, isn't about punishment. It's not about the crime. It's about rehabilitation. Exactly. <laughs> and <clears throat> his point, this um, appellate court justice's point was, um, somebody who's committed murder in the first degree versus murder in the first degree with special circumstances, there's no difference in their ability to rehabilitate. And that would, that's what, and so they should be treated the same. But people with murder with special circumstances have LWAP or the death penalty, but in the case what we're talking about, LWAP, and they don't have the chance to, to have a parole hearing. So that's the, the legal grounds. What makes it a very, very, very hard case to win is that the standard is what's rational basis. It's called rational basis. Okay. And it just means, um, in a nutshell, does the government, did the legislature have uh, a rational basis to differentiate between these two classes of individuals? Now, it's a little bit harder because the focus is the question, as the way this lower court justice put it, was is there any way to distinguish between, in terms of the ability to rehabilitate? Because that's what SB 260 is so about. So one's 17 and one could be 18. It could be in it's not. It's, a, it's really not about age. It's really about... Capacity um, to... It's about, the, it's about these two crimes. And the only thing, the only reason, you know, people with LWAP, you know, on a murder were, are excluded from SB 260 is because they had a special circumstance. And S SB 260 is about um, incentivizing and giving people a chance if they work really hard, like you did, um, and can prove to a parole board. And there's just no, you know, it's my belief, there's no rational reason to say, when we're talking about, well, who can rehabilitate to say that there's a difference between murder one and, and murder one with special circumstances. But I guess, uh, apropos of our conversation about hope, um, yeah. people have to recognize that um, almost anything can be a rational basis. And so it's going to be very difficult for Mr. Hardin's attorneys to um, overcome that. Wow. However, um, you know, okay. back on, like, this is a long a long road and it's hard. Um, we are in like such a different place than we were even 10 years ago um, with life without parole. More people are aware of it. Um, more people think that it's wrong. Um, there is 
you know, more of an understanding that um, people can, a person can be someone who's committed a horrible crime um, and they can become someone who is, has many gifts yeah. to give um, to others. And so I, um, even if we lose Harden, I just feel like we have to recognize we're really, really in a different place. We're so much closer to getting rid of LWAP than we ever were. Um, and I think it's possible, and we just have to find you know, the right, probably roads, more than one road to get there. Yeah, because when I look at like my friends in there with LWAP, and I'll think, you know, you committed your crime at 18, and you were just sensed like you're irredeemable forever. Right, yeah. Like, wow, like just forever. Yeah. And, and, and for the people that argue against it, you know, I yeah. understand completely like there was a victim in this case, and there was yeah. a family, and there was an entire ripple effect but at what service are we doing to those people who suffered that by continuing to, you know, incarcerate this person forever, you know, and, and the person is not, it's not a get out of free, a jail free card. You actually go before a parole board. It's a rigorous process yeah. that you're going to go through. So it's, it's not a, it's not a freebie or a free way out. What do you think about, I remember maybe the year prior when I was going before board, I would, there was some kind of, um, I think a cop was killed or something in El Monte. And I remember my fear so bad. Yeah. It was a guy that they're saying, you know, he just got released from jail on one of these new laws. It was actually, um, he was arrested for stealing something, some yeah. food or I, I forgot exactly what it was. But my fear was that everything's going to get yeah. reversed. And I know yeah. a lot of guys inside, like the word you saw is be like, we got to get home before this window closes. Like I, I was also in fear of that window. Um, closing because yeah. I saw how quick things shifted in the early 90s, you know, with the cases and three yeah. strikes and when the emotions rise, how quick a law gets yeah. put into place and how many years it takes to actually dismantle that. But is there, is that fear yeah. there with, uh, with you and people that do your work? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot going on right now with people talking about there is you know, like increase in crime. There's an increase in violent crime, although we've just had homicides start to go down. Um, I think it's a mistake, because I have a lot of people say to me, oh, you know, the pendulum, it's gonna swing one way and then it's exactly. gonna swing another way. Yeah. And I really think that it's a mistake to think like that. Um, I, I think there is not a pendulum. Um, things can change um, and we just have to be kind of ready to have an alternative explanation for what's going on. We need to be examining the reforms that we've made and making sure that they're working and seeing what needs to be the next thing. That's so, um, great, that, it's so great that you said but that. But not, I mean, we again are in a different situation than we were in the 90s for a lot of reasons. And one is, particularly when we're talking about uh, young people and young adults, there is a solid understanding of the neurological and developmental differences between adults um, and adolescents, um, which is now understood to go through the mid-20s. And we're not going to completely lose that. Um, and we just have to, I mean, we, we have a long ways to go in so many arenas. Um, I think we have to be aware of that aware that yes we've made some like SB 260 you know think about it it's a back-end fix 
It's a fix that says, well, it means like, go ahead and keep giving people sentences that are a hundred years long and we will give them a chance to, you know, rehabilitate and, you know, prove themselves at the back end, um, as opposed to, you know, focusing on changes that could happen, you know, at the front end that might, although there's been some of that that might incentivize. So when you entered prison and you had that doc hearing two years in and you're like, okay, that's, you know, it's clear to me what, what path I should choose. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's things that, you know, can be done very early on, even prior to someone being sentenced to prison that, you know, create a different pathway. So I, I you know, back on the, like, are we entering into a time where the window is closed? I mean, I might be wrong, but I don't, I don't think so. I think we just have to be um, smart and we have to be careful about what we choose. I think for those of us who do, you know, criminal justice reform, we really um, must be people who are thinking beyond just the person who's committed the crime. And, you know, like I mentioned early on in the LWAP work, we recognize that there's like an ethical reason. There's there's reasons for to be as far as being effective also, but there are ethical reasons to make sure that the movements that we create and the efforts that we work on are, um, you know, really for, you know, creating justice for, for everyone. Um, and so I think that's a that's a including victims and survivors. If I'm not saying that clearly enough, like no, I got it because that was yeah, yeah, that was one of my favorite yeah. parts of the restorative justice and the healing dialogue is when it was pointed out to me that when you go to court, you have the offender. You have the victims. You guys are not to look at each other. Like, yeah, you're, you're, it's, yeah. it's such, yeah. And there's no healing involved. And I remember, um, Javier, like he always saying, like I wanted to make. He wants to make that part of the, the yeah. Which, oh my gosh, that would, yeah. What a battle that yeah. would be, or even part of the parole board system to make it a um, that model right there, or some version of that model. Because, but that's. A lot of people are just, are maybe are not at that point ready because that's a level of of compassion and forgiveness. I'm like, yeah. I ever imagined, ever imagined. I've seen a father whose son died from gang violence, and the actual person who did it, he called him his son and he visited him. Unbelievable. Yeah, I met him in Ironwood in Christmas time. It was unbelievable. I don't, you know, that's the other thing is I don't feel like. Those stories are so compelling, so compelling, you know, they, but I think people can dismiss them also and just say, well, that person's a saint, (laughs) you know, they're like on the extreme end of it, but there's a lot of space between feeling like I I want you to die in prison (laughs) Um, and, you know, I'm going to call you my son, you know, there's a huge, huge spread Mm -hmm. of people just being able to see each other as, as human beings, you know, both ways, you know, I mean, as somebody who's been, you know, see, seeing the survivors as somebody who's been really deeply injured and the survivor being able to, you know, see the person who committed the crime as a, a full human being also. And for someone to, who's committed that actual crime and to see, like victim survivors come in and tell their stories. You're yeah. never the same again. I, yeah. I, I couldn't imagine. Yeah. I couldn't imagine. 
on this journey of change, there's so many things happened to me that just unbelievable, unbelievable. So many people say to me that that's, and I kind of hear you saying, it's like, that's like one of the most powerful things in prison is being able to be in a setting like that where survivors are there with you in person and talking about their experience and sharing with you or whatever, even short of the, we forgive you, like just the being willing to engage with you. Sure. It's just a very powerful thing. Cause you get that perspective. Yeah. Like, you know, years back I would go back and read my transcripts and, and, and I wanted to learn more about, mm. you know, my victim and him as a person. Cause there's a shift, there's a conviction that comes in me and it's important to hear that. Like you understand the process and it, it, it makes you a better person for them. Cause the way I looked at it, for better or worse, because of my decisions, our stories are forever interlocked, yeah. mine and his. Yeah. So I, I, I need to feel that responsibility and do something with that so that this didn't happen in vain. And I, the only way is giving back or doing something or sharing my story. That's the only way that I can, because the parole commissioner and the board said, how do you make it psychologically okay for you to live knowing you did that? Yeah. And I was so glad that he, because I had spent so much time thinking and writing about that right there. Uh -huh. It was a huge. Do you deserve this kind yeah. of? Is that kind he of asked what he was me, asking? Do you deserve to go home? I uh -huh. said absolutely not. Yeah. I said I don't feel I deserve to come home. Um, I explained my my level of remorse and, and 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 how I felt and how I changed my life and how regardless if you find me suitable today or tonight, I'm I'm going to continue being this person that I'm sharing with you. But I'm here asking for for an opportunity for a second chance. But deserving, I wasn't sure if I was deserving. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm not deserving of anything after what I did mm -hmm. is, is how I felt, you know. It's kind of like there's an element of mercy, of where does mercy come in? You know, mercy yeah. being, you know, something that's not necessarily earned, but, you know, gives a little element of grace, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I guess unmerited grace, yeah, like like um, just mercy in the book, yeah. just mercy. He explained it as unmerited. But I, I mean, I, I think I'll, you know, I'll say as someone who wasn't in your shoes, um, that if, if we believe that someone who commits a mur murder never really deserves to be out. Um, I feel like that takes us to a place that I don't want to go. Um, I, I believe we have to figure out like kind of what's enough punishment. We have to recognize that that's part of what our system is doing. I'm, you know, leaving aside whether our system, you know, works or whether it's right or whatever, part of what it's doing is um, punishing somebody. And it, there has to be a point at which okay, the punishment's enough. And because you're never going to bring back the person who died. Um, and what, then what a hard is that so hard of an argument to make or a yeah. case, not necessarily an argument, but like when you're making that case, because the comebacks always well, yeah. they're never coming back. So why yeah. should he? Yeah, but it's it, like, I think it's something that you said earlier, too. It's like it's we've, we've reached a point where it's not going to make a difference. Um, it's not going to make things better. And you know, for many of you who are getting out, you are, when you get out, you are doing things that make things better. You know, at a minimum, people are taking care of elderly parents. You know, they're financially supporting other people. This is what we saw when we did 
this study of people who had LWAP okay. and are now out is like the vast majority of them are financially helping other people, whether it's family members or friends. Um, they're taking care of um, elderly parents. A huge percentage of them have moved into a role of being a healthy adult in a young person's life. Um, many of them are working, going back into prisons and youth facilities. Yes. And so like really, really in a very real sense, making the world a better a better place. And so there's, I, I think as a society, you know, as a state, California has to make a decision, okay, when is enough as far as the punishment? Um, and then the question is, you know, did you work um, in a way, if you have an indeterminate sense, sentence, did you work in a way that makes you eligible um, for, for release? But, but I know, I mean, I, have, I know many people who had the same, in your situation, had the same response of, um, no, I don't deserve this. But um, I don't know. It's, it's I think you one. did. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I think you did. Honestly, and, and you also did something that can never be changed. Sure. You know? and, 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 I, and we, we had these debates in, in prison yeah. over the question, do you deserve? Because we, you know, we read transcripts and we were looking into ourselves and trying to understand better. And I kind of felt like I said, I, I do in the fact that like I, I made genuine change and I worked yeah. really hard to become this man that I am today. But there's a big difference between articulating that to yeah. the board because it can be taken in such a way. Right. Right. I like I deserve this. Yeah. It would like, be in the board. It would be difficult. Oh, like to a say sense it. of entitlement. Like I mean, maybe if the question was, um, is it fair? You know, is it fair for you to be, you know, out and yeah. living life um, when you're victim and you know everybody yeah. related to him don't don't have that. Um, that kind of opportunity. Um, but then like a lot of things are not fair and, yeah. um, and I, and we have to just kind of, you know, live with that. And yeah, I don't know. It's I a, mean, we, when you go through the board process, you somewhat have determined the individual that's going to be returning back to the streets. And after, even after getting found suitable, it takes 120 days for the board to review yeah. it. It went to the, the governor's desk, yeah. which where no action was taken, which was the longest 148 I, days of my <laughs> life. Yeah, oh. I, yeah. Who was your attorney? Um, okay, so I had, um, I, don't, I don't even remember his name at the time. It was just a state appointed. Oh, but okay, you're saying your appellate attorney <laughs> wrote you a letter. For, for your Oh, Christine parole. Aros. Okay, okay. Yeah, she's that's, in San Diego now. That's great. That's great. Yeah, yeah. But my my appellate attorney, too, not my appellate, excuse me, my parole board attorney, encouraged me to postpone my actual hearing. Oh, really? Because after seven years? Yeah, I have no idea. I have no idea because I, I guess they had switched the yeah. commissioners or something at the time. But oh, I, he's I was worried like, about the commissioners? Absolutely not. Yeah. Please, I'll see wow. you in there. I yeah. didn't even necessarily need him for anything yeah. other than to make sure the legalities yeah. were covered. Yeah. You know, because it's my life on the line. And, yeah. Yeah. You know, I went in there comfortable. Like, I, yeah. was, I was genuine, you know. Yeah. yeah. What was your greatest moment where you were just like, yeah. Because I talked to my um, my friend Darlene, who was uh, really active in um, SB 260. Uh-huh. In Anti-Recidivism Coalition. Um, I'm sure you've met her at some point. Yeah. Robert Luca is her husband. Yeah. Amazing guy over there. Yeah. I remember her sharing with me the joy when SB 260, she's like, when being able to deliver that news to you guys 
like has there ever been like what's your been your moment where it's oh wow i don't know i've had a lot of you know i've had the good fortune of having a lot of moments where we just feel like oh my god i can't believe wow that we've come to this place where you know people are going to have a real opportunity to get out um, and it's such heart, it's heartbreaking work for the most part, it seems it, like. It, 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 there's a lot of heartbreak in it. You know, I, it's funny, I think, um, I, well, you'll probably appreciate this more than the average person. I, I think the law that I have worked on that affects the fewest number of people is the one that I, I think felt the most emotional about and that was the, the law that I mentioned to you earlier, um, SB two, uh, SB thirteen ninety one, which okay. um, makes it uh, impossible for someone who's under the age of sixteen to be prosecuted as an adult and face adult sentences like you did. And California is the only state in the nation that has prohibited, you know, the youngest kids from being. Um, tried as adults, and I don't know. And, and by the time we passed that law, there really weren't that many people who at, who were 14 or 15 and were being tried as adults. Okay. Because um, the state had, in part because of laws that we had helped pass, the state had been moving away from trying the youngest as adults. But it still felt like, um, and it actually ended up affecting a lot more people than I thought it would, but it just felt like, wow, like these individuals are not going to be sent to a level four yard, you know, so, at age 18. You know, so they are not going to have to make the decisions that you made, like, which is, you know, make myself look exactly. at that stabbing so that I harden myself and, yes. you know, gird myself ready, you know, choosing to be full on, I assume, um, yeah. in your gang so yes. that for protection and, meaning and purpose acceptance, and everything else acceptance that, yes. um, Absolutely. and you know our juvenile system is not perfect but um it's better than than what you went through and most definitely yeah so I mean, even when I so that's like kids. a little it's a it was a it was very difficult to pass um like i said it it you know it it affected the fewest number of people of any law that i've worked on and still makes me get kind of teary-eyed thinking about yeah. it. You know? What about closing the youth authorities? Yeah, you know, that YTS, was, Ventura yeah, 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 that's, um, you know, we're still really in the throes of that <laughs> because there's just like tremendous uh, conflict um, around kind of the next steps with that. Um, in terms of where they're going to go. Yeah, where they're going to go, how they're going to be treated, you know, what kind of facilities, you know, they're going to be locked in. And, um, but yeah, that, I mean, that was one of those, I mean, I guess, you know, as you're asking, is like, there's like points where you are aware that we're at a, a line. We're at a line and from, from this point forward, um, it will be before we close DJJ yeah, yeah. and after we close DJJ. Okay. It will be before we recognized that it was wrong to send 14-year-olds to the adult system. 
um, and then after we recognized that. And I think those are some of the moments that are, you know, in terms of the work and, you know, something passing or whatever that are the most meaningful. But I think, you know, the real, you know, like super, super happy moments are like kind of like you telling me about that connection that we had. Yeah. And knowing that, you know, it was a brief connection, but we both were like all, you and I both were just all in, you know, trying to connect um, as two human beings. Yeah. And it's just powerful. So when I hear of those later, which has happened, you know, a fair amount, it's just like really meaningful about, you know, to be a part of something that's that, that kind of human connection where, you know, we're pulling each other up or, you know, I'm yeah. handing you some hope that helps you pull yourself up and that kind of thing is, that's, I think those are the most powerful moments for my yeah, work. That's why my yeah. first question was, do you under, do you, do you know, are you, are you yeah. conscious of that? You know, and at the time too, I had two tattoos over my eyes that's since been removed. I've done tattoo removal at Homeboy Excellent. Industries. You know? I looks good. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I still got a couple more rounds. Yeah. But, um, yeah, yeah, that was important for me too. Yeah. What about, yeah. um, like the more difficult moments, like, do you, are there any that stick out? Like, yeah. which I can, I can imagine there's many in this line of work. Yeah. <laughs> um, what you've been doing for how long? Like, yeah, I, well, I've been doing this work in California for 18 years. Okay. And, um, way back when it was not cool. Yeah, it really wasn't. It, it, was it really cool. wasn't. There yeah, was like no, no like we, we could not get some of our regular, one. you know, kind of expected allies to join in on it because they were like, yeah, no, it's like. Uh, so, um, I, I think um, you know the thing they were talking about earlier. For a while, it was, um, yeah, you know, sometimes. Well, for a while, it was very, it was hard. Uh, this. Um, concern that like people would you know grab onto hope and then have their hopes dashed and be suicidal and in fact in the um did you have it you've mentioned that a few times was that yeah. an experience you had or just a something yeah, no we had um where people took it extremely hard yeah no no actually i didn't have it where people took it extremely hard this was just my you, own you okay, know okay. thing it was it, and of course we ultimately won and so we didn't have a situation where i was having to say i guess we just can't do this or whatever yeah, you know yeah. um which i don't you know it, i'd like to think we wouldn't have said that to begin with but no i think i was just worried because people were in such a dark place yeah and really just thought absolutely they were going to die in prison. You probably thought you were going to die in prison, but you understand that someone with life without parole, that's a whole different layer. They're than, watching everybody you know, like, go to board, all their, yeah. their, their friends. But even when people weren't getting out, it just was another layer. It's like you didn't even let yourself think about going to board yeah, because that, you that never that would. Gone. Yeah, there's he's never. Yeah. So there's that. And, and we did have, um, like right like in the last year of working on that, for whatever reason, I had three or four people write me and say, like indicate one way or another that they were suicidal. Mm. And yeah, it was, it, it was hard. Wow. I mean, it was like a, a difficult, uh, it, it was a, it was, it, it was difficult. Um, I think, and this might be just because I, the session just ended, um, but 
the last few years have been um, acrimonious in a way that um, I, I feel like I, I still need to kind of process this some. The, the, with uh, SB9 and SB260, there was a lot of heavy opposition, um, and, and with SB9 in particular, um, a lot of it was just very intense from uh, survivors. And like constantly, you know, every six months or so, I would ask to meet with some of the victim groups, and we like just like there was no nothing, no way to connect. Like there because wow. it was like. No, 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 there's nothing, there's no middle ground. And I'm sure they felt that way with us also. And so that was hard, but it was kind of understandable. Sure. And, you know, in the last few years, particularly related to the juvenile work, there's just been a lot of um, kind of acrimonious, uh, mainly from law enforcement uh, interactions. And it's, it, um, sometimes, I guess sometimes it, the work is hard because it just feels like we should be able to find some common ground um, yeah, on yeah. some of these issues. Yeah. To me, it's very obvious, you know, and obviously other people, it's not obvious to. To me, it's very obvious that this capacity for human beings to dramatically change, to, um, you know, become people who have so much to give. Um, and I think for people who are focused on, but they need to be punished, it's possible for people to be punished also. And then, but we still have, um, you know, a segment of, um, segment of the, of the population, and it's not all law enforcement. There's a lot of law enforcement that is now really kind of focused on rehabilitation. We might disagree about how to get there, but, um, yeah. There are, there's been some pretty dramatic shifts. Everybody wants the same thing. Yeah. So there has well, been yeah. within law enforcement. I think, I mean, you know, think even about CDCR. It, you yeah. know, there's... It whatever, has changed. Like in your time there, pretty dramatic Well, before... Change. You before, know, not before, like it's, you know, not like it's perfect or something, but I'm just saying it's, it, there's been yeah. a big, pretty big shift. I had a... It was actually another LWAP. It, we, we always had an idea of like a group where we, we would all wear the same thing. It would be like... 30 to 40 people in a circle and there'd be correction officers sprinkled within and wearing the same thing and you just kind of go around and, and share about your life no, no intense details uh -huh. but just kind of find like similar connections and stuff like that I mean that was a big jump the idea being before like I left, you couldn't tell each other apart well, it's just by so your life us, stories yeah. because it would be yeah put us on yeah. the same plane yeah, and all yeah. That. yeah that's but before we left we, we actually did that I wasn't, I wasn't able to make it, but they had um, maybe about 20 inmates and about 10 of the officers on the yard. Wow. And they kind of talked about, like, what's your biggest grievous with, uh, with, the, with the inmate population? Ah, the shirts and chow not tucked in uh -huh. or ignoring us. You know, what's with yours, you know? And, and it did start a dialogue. It wow. Did. And then you both were, answered that question? Both sides answered. And there was a portion <laughs> that, like, okay. yeah. All right. And there was a portion of what... You know, what do you do after work? How do you relax? You know, how do you relax? And it's so uh -huh. more like a humane, it, neutral it was, questions. Yeah, but yeah. I was like, this was unimaginable years ago. That like is, unimaginable. Yeah. Like you, you, you don't even have contact with them. Period. Like yeah. you don't talk to them. It's them against us, yeah. and which was a, a horrible, a horrible at the time. But yeah, definitely yeah. seen. 
like the growth which I want to ask, it seems like all of a sudden in 2014, and I know a lot of people, like the floodgates open and all this prison reform. Yeah. I mean, they're hearing now that the years and the years that the revisions and the laws yeah. and the knocking on the doors and all that. But did it seem like it, it just seemed like everything happened so fast? Yeah, I mean, there were a, there was a long, dark period. Long, dark, <laughs> Very yes. long, dark yeah. period. Yeah, um, yeah. And... Yeah, then I think several things happened. Um, Prop 36 passed in 2012. SB9 was the first, you know, sentencing change, basically. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, a law that changes a sentence. Um, And it just began, you know, like I mentioned, the... Some of the legislators who voted for SB9 in 2012 were worried that it was going to get them unelected, okay. and that didn't happen. And so it sent a message that um, you can vote for progressive criminal reforms, and it doesn't mean you're going to be you know, unelected. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think that was true um, for you know, a number of little piecemeal things that happened at that time period. It just seems and like everybody, some good was happening for everybody. And yeah. It, it, Everybody that was doing the right thing, you, 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 I want to always reiterate, you always have to earn your way out. There's no, yeah. the door just doesn't swing open. You got to put in the For work. life sentences, yeah. Yeah, even, um, you know, people that are earning these credits, mm-hmm. like there, there's... Like, I met guys in, in the beginning of the group, if I'm facilitating, I say, who's here just for the rat credits? Who's here just to get a little time knocked off? Yeah, people raise their hands. We'll have a few yeah. guys on. I yeah. Appreciate, yeah, I appreciate your honesty, but yeah. you're sitting here, so that's all that matters. Yeah. And... A month later, you know, I, I'd ask them the same question, and they're not anymore. Like, they've kind of caught on with the yeah. topic, and you've challenged some of my beliefs yeah, in great. this program. So, yeah, it just seemed like in, in that time, like, everything just seemed to have happened so fast. Yeah. So what kind fast. of groups did you lead? Criminal, Gang Members Anonymous, yeah. Narcotics Anonymous. Um, yeah. I was in Alternative to Violence with Abraham. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was uh, Healing Dialogue in Action. Yeah. But my greatest one, I mean, I love them all, but they really helped me in my life. It was the Positive Change Dog Program, for yeah. sure. The dog, so my dog spent, I did the program twice. My dog spent 14 weeks with me in the cell, training. The trainers would come in. We'd be given techniques every Wednesday. And the goal was to get those dogs adopted. A lot of our dogs got adopted to families in Arkansas all over. My mom adopted my dog. No. Yeah. Oh my God. That so is so I, great. I, I got yeah. And this is in 2017, and my second dog in 18. She's like, I'm not going to be adopting every dog you train. Did she adopt she the adopted second the one? She adopted the second one because I said, Mom, <laughs> this is my soulmate. You cannot let this dog out into the world. So four years later, I came home and my dogs were right there. We oh had, my it was, God. It was. Did somebody film that? Yeah. Them yeah. seeing you yeah, get out and it. like. Yeah, they came up. They sniffed me for about three seconds. It just. Just jumped up. They, oh, it was the greatest gosh. feeling in the world. Wow. Yeah, Do they still the, live with your mom? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're still there. With her. She, I'm not going to get them. She's like, those are my dogs. Yeah, right. you know, that's our house. Right. But, that's um, great. Yeah, but that was definitely one of um, like the most greatest ones. I Also now, too, do you, have, do you pay attention to um, in your line of work or for yourself, like the post-prison, um, like the transition world? Which yeah, some lot. yes, okay. yeah, I do. Yeah, 
what are your th- like what do you uh, do you have thoughts on that are there things you want to implement i think that's really important too yeah people coming home because everybody's coming home with this like i always said i came home I, like i'm fully equipped in this world i just have to learn how to execute these skills because yeah. my last reference point was at 16 years old when i was out here right Right. Well, how did you feel the transitional living home that you went to did in that regard? Because when people first started getting out, oh my God, there were uh, the transitional living homes for the most part had people who were coming out of jail, and you know more accurately like cycling in and out of jail, and you know had not done any of the work for the most part. And so, you, and then sprinkled in were former lifers. Yeah, that's. Uh, and yeah, so then I they would so say, well, idea. okay, you can start leading the groups, you know, and, you know, and I remember early on people having to do some absurd, like six hours a day of groups for people who were former lifers that they've just done, you know, 15 years of groups. Yeah, exactly. And they yeah, need to yeah. be doing things like, well, how do I get my driver's license? Exactly. <laughs> you know, exactly. and, you know, set up a bank account and all that kind of stuff. But, um, I, but so Amity and some of the others that began to like focus on lifers. Well, they had, that's, I, to my knowledge, that's the only actual lifer house, which was the Amity Beacon uh-huh. house, which was when I was there, 45 to 50 of us, like everybody lifers. Yeah. And it was great because they, they treat you so good right there. Like they give you good food. Like it's really a, yeah. like a home environment. Um, you know, obviously it's a curriculum, rather like more individual based. Like for us, I think it was six hours a week of groups, okay. which is fair. That's, that's, that's which different. Is, than, it's like, fair, yeah. but it's still hard after you've been like, I literally had spent the last yeah. five years pushing myself yeah. just overnight essays and writing and board prep and preparing the yeah. board portfolio like I had been so grouped out so to, to go in there and do groups yeah it, it is it's a little, little off-putting yeah. but they do um drive you to the DMV they do walk you through those yeah, processes but I know there are some that um are, are fall behind on that you know um the one I was at was great but I it's, it's so important for these people that are coming home it, to just to walk them through the whole yeah, process you're, sure. I mean, you're on the front end creating the opportunity yeah. the opportunity takes place and then you know, once they do yeah. go home. I mean, it's a, I think it's a critical component to people succeeding when they get out. Sure. Is having and and I was blessed with, yeah. with, with a family and, and mm-hmm. an amazing support network. Yeah. So going forward, what are you doing today? What's, what are the, what are you working on? Well, um, I, the last few years, um, my work has been kind of in a couple of different realms. One is working on, uh, life without parole and um, building leadership capacity among people who either currently have life without parole, but especially people who had life without parole and have, have gotten out either because of a commutation or, um, you know, one of the, if they were juveniles because of the juvenile laws, or some of them have gotten out under other laws that have passed. So we've done, we're doing, um, leadership training um, for yeah, people who are former, former LWAPs. Okay. Um, we're doing that both in prisons um, for people who are currently LWAP, outside of prisons. We, um, a couple of years ago, established uh, a national LWAP leadership council. So it's a council of 14 members. I think they're from six states uh, right now. And they are people who want to play um, a role, a special role in 
helping to lead uh, the country to the end of life without parole. And so they do oh. everything from, uh, they have a speaker's bureau that actually includes other former lifers, but um, is led by the, the council. So I think last in the spring, they did, I can't remember, it was like 30 uh, presentations to college and university classrooms. That's huge, um, wow. They have developed a um, talking points guide for helping, in particular, people who are formerly incarcerated um, know how to talk about and to kind of think through the messaging on ending life without parole and how to, you know, proceed with um, respect and compassion towards survivors and kind of understanding what some of their concerns and you know things that they don't like about that that movement. They um, they are assisting with different legislation in different parts of the country. So actually Abraham was one of three people who we sent uh, to Rhode Island to testify in favor of a, a bill there. Um, and they're doing a lot of social media stuff. So just they're playing this kind of role um, of, you know, we are people who've experienced life without parole and we're gonna talk about why we need to end it. Okay. Yeah. Where's our LWAP sign? I know Ray, oh, that one back there. <laughs> Um, and then uh, we're also doing um, some work that falls into the category of, um, you know, like helping people outside of the movement um, understand what life without parole is and why it's important to um, stop using it as a sentence. And that's where that report that I mentioned where we surveyed people. Yeah. Um, who are who had life without parole or out? Um, we're about to uh, start up a website that will have um, stories, including some that Herd uh, Studios has put together, um, yeah. showing um, former LWAPs um, in a conversation with someone who's had a loved one uh, who was murdered, and they just kind of talk about each other's experience. They talk about the sentence of life without parole. It's not something where there's like some resolution or everybody, you know, ends just, being yeah. best friends, but it yeah. is just like this opportunity to observe um, what happens when two people sit down. And I think it's also an opportunity to really see kind of the depth of integrity that um, people who had life without parole and are somehow able to get out um, have. And then the other work I'm doing is uh, having to do with juveniles and uh, like you mentioned, um, you seem like you got happier when you talked about that one. I don't know. No, do it all when you see. Like, no, it, it's <laughs> um, you know I I know uh, I'm not sure if your listeners will be as interested in it um, as as the the other stuff, but um, but anyway, just working towards um, reducing the number of kids that get tried as adults, um, mm -hmm. and we're just about to start doing some of that work outside of California, and in California. We've set in motion this big transformation to the juvenile justice system. So shutting down what's now called or was called DJJ, but is most people would know it as CYA, um, and shifting to locally based uh, juvenile justice systems. And really, the real important thing is a shift from corrections, you know, a typical corrections model like CDCR, um, to one that is more health focused, and health and uh, healing, and yeah, yeah. I just saw a yeah. clip of um, 
John Stewart talking to Gavin Newsom, and they were inside of sort of it looked like sort of like a cell block. Oh, and interesting. He yeah, he pointed out. He said it's hard to become humane again when you live in such an inhumane construct. Yeah. He's like, look around us. This is designed for one reason: to keep them away from each other, from killing each other. Yeah. So, Newsom said that. Uh, no, uh, John Stewart okay. pointed out, okay. and Gavin Newsom yeah. agreed with them. Yeah. He said absolutely. Yeah. You know, he's yeah. trying to do that work to move it forward, but yeah. that's a huge part too. The um, the way it's built and designed and yeah. this door opens right. or like the, one of the most shocking things to me and I, I had never realized it. I had been to Pelican Bay when Scott pointed out this is the only place in the world where a door goes when it opens. Yeah. You know, and I was yeah. like, wow, because you had heard that so many times. Yeah, it becomes the norm. Yeah. yeah. And, it, you know, you don't realize these things, but you come, it just becomes the norm to you. Yeah. And you, you yeah. can lose your humanity and this isn't, we don't live in Siberia. People are coming back home. So you want to create, that's yeah. the most important, the, the type of human being. It's true for every single human being. And, you know, you, you were talking about kind of what's the vision for post-incarceration. When we talk about people who are under age 18 at the time of their crime, I mean, I think part of the vision is how do we make incarceration the very last resort and instead have you know, other opportunities for young people to really grow and thrive and kind of, you know, leave behind um, whatever it was that uh, led them to the, to criminal, to criminal behavior. So, I mean, I'm hoping in the next few years, California will be increasing the ways that even when a youth commits a serious crime, that they can um, not um, face just being locked up in that kind of inhumane setting, you know, four walls where you're struggling to not have that be what defines you. Um, and instead focused on, you know, healing, education, you know, opportunities to, even opportunities to explore. Um, so it's not just choose a vocation and that's what it is, but opportunities like people should be doing, you know, during adolescence, you know, getting an opportunity to try something on. It's like, no, oh, I thought I wanted to do that, but I really want to try this instead. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm hoping we're going to be able to move the state more and more towards those kinds of opportunities. It seems like uh, a lot of what you do is to go, like, try to tap into people's morality. Like, it's, it's, it's huh. like, find that place where it's, it's not right to, to do this to a human yeah. being. Like, like share this with me. Is that sort of yeah? The that's case? interesting. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that, but it is. I mean, I think that's probably uh, you're probably hearing like my perspective on it is yeah. is like wait a minute, this is not this is not how we should treat human young people. Yeah. This is not how we should treat human beings. Um, yeah, so I think there is. And then you bring then it. you bring the um, the science along, which has made it powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And then the things that you're talking that you've brought up a couple of times too, which are. You know, it's like, what do we want to be like a society? You know, what is, you know, what kind of society do we want? And if people are going to get out, who do we want them to be? What kind of tools do we want them to have? Sure, sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, I want to thank you. My pleasure. It's been nice talking with you. Yeah, this is, um, it doesn't get no more full circle than this, right? Yeah, here. right. That this is, is so true. I, that is so true. I'm wearing my yeah. sweatshirt, but I got goosebumps about 10 times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but um, from the bottom of my heart, I thank oh. you so much. I speak for many, many, many hundreds of men. Um, your name ring bells <laughs> across the yards and it ripples across the day rooms. 
you are you you give hope, um, and and because I think because we know you fight for us, that goes to you and, and, and your whole team. I know there's people that you know help you as well, and, and thank you so much. Thank you for um, coming on here, and this is what we're trying to do. These are the conversations we're trying to have. Great. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's All been really nice. Thank you very yeah. much. Okay, that's the Strangest Fruit Podcast. This was a really personal, intimate conversation that I wanted to have for a long time with someone who I actually spoke to, as we talked about in 2014. And um, special day for me, full circle moment. Thank you very much. Thank you.